Welcome to Central Wesleyan Church's podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for downloading and listening. And we hope that today you find God's word to be encouraging, challenging, and inspiring. We would love to connect with you through our Facebook and Instagram. All you have to do is search Central Wesleyan Church Ashboro. And please know that we love you and we are praying for you. We hope that you enjoyed this week's message. Who likes to shop sales? I love to shop sales. I love to find the best thing for the cheapest price. We call it bargain hunting. I love to bargain hunt through all the discount papers you get in the week. I love to find apps that tell me where the best sales are. I love to go to Aldi's because the produce is great, but it's cheap. I love thrift stores. You can get brand name things. It's expensive looking, but it's used. My husband, he loves a good yard sale or finding something on the side of the road and fixing it up. Bargain hunting is a celebrated thing in America. We watch shows about people bargain hunting. It's it's considered to be an awesome trait. But there's another side of bargain hunting. And the question I have for the American church is, are we spiritual bargain hunters? Do we look for the biggest blessing we can get from God with the smallest payment of ourselves? Do we look for the smallest sacrifice, the smallest time commitment, the smallest inconvenience in order for God to richly bless our lives? Spiritual bargain hunting has fueled consumerism and externalism in the American church. What is consumerism? Consumerism asks the question, what do I get out of this and how much will it cost me? It sits and waits to be blessed. It demands to be entertained. It focuses on oneself. And it believes it deserves something because it's paid the price, so everything should be tailored to the customer. It has the attitude of the customer is always right. What is externalism? Externalism is the currency of consumerism. It's making sure you're doing something, whether you mean it or not, in order to pay into consumerism and to be the customer. Externalism raises its hands in praise, but it's more concerned with the blessing that it now deserves for paying the sacrifice of praise. It's the prayer that's so beautifully crafted, but is more concerned with poetics and beauty than the presence of God. Externalism is getting to church 45 minutes early under the guise of dedication, but it's actually more concerned with people seeing our dedication. Externalism is singing the songs, nodding our heads in agreement, saying, I'm praying for you and we love everyone in order to show that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. But in actuality, we're just doing those things because that's what we do. We're doing those things so that we can demand (laughs) blessings. Consumerism and externalism, unfortunately, are not new. In 2013, Byron Yon likened 
the modern church to free group therapy. You pay in by being there. You pay in by singing the songs. You pay in by raising your hands and being invested. And now you get your free group therapy. A.W. Tozer, who lived from 1897 to 1963, wrote that too much of contemporary Christianity is borrowed from the philosophies of the world and even other religion. Phrases and mottos that on the surface look great but are not rooted in scripture or that mostly bolster one's self-image. There's a lot of church self in these descriptions of the church. Consumerism and externalism, though, they date all the way back to the Old Testament. If we read the prophets in the, in the Bible, we see warnings that God doesn't want rituals. He doesn't want sacrifices from hardened hearts. Jesus talks about this too. He doesn't want us to just do the thing so that we can be good. So that we can check off our list and now we're going to receive the blessing. Now we're going to receive salvation. That's not what he's looking for. The book of Malachi specifically addresses this issue and it was written around 650 BC. What amazes me is that God has been dealing with this issue all the way back in the Old Testament and he continues to be patient for, with us. He continues to love us and bless us even though we continue to do the things that he was dealing with in the 5th century BC. And I just love that goodness of God for us. So as we continue through, remember that there is mercy, there is love, there is patience. And God is not going to abandon us because we continue to suffer with the, or struggle through the same issues that the Israelites did. But we can learn from them. So the book of Malachi is addressing a group that probably looks pretty good, spiritually speaking, from the outside. They worship God. They're not idolatrous. They go to the temple. So it's like us showing up to church. They do their sacrifices on time. So they're, the, they're invested in the church service. And they do all the things they're supposed to do. But Malachi reveals that their hearts are more focused on the blessings they deserve for doing those things, for doing religion, than on God himself. And the people, the priests, they're honestly surprised that God's unhappy with them. They question why God is so upset. And in the book of Malachi, you see them going back and forth with God about, why are you so unhappy with us? In chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, God says, O priests who despise my name. And they say, how have we despised your name? And God says, by offering polluted food upon my altar. And they say, how have we polluted you? And he says, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. And then in chapter 2, verse 17, he says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. And the prophets say, How have we wearied him? And he says, By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. These are people who have dedicated their lives to God, who have dedicated their lives to working in the temple. It's breaking their hearts. They don't understand why God is viewing them this way. And if we're totally honest, if these people were alive today, I believe we would think God was happy with them. I believe most of us, if not all of us, would be part of them. 
They were people who had drifted away from worshiping God in spirit and truth and had began to worship God with outward action and selfishness. I'm sure this switch occurred slowly and seeped through unnoticed. It was not a conscious decision to make their worship about themselves. It was likely an overlooked flaw that eventually took root. Malachi 1, 13-14 says, But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hands? Says the Lord. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. If we read that in the message, it says, I am honored all over the world, and there are people who know how to worship me all over the world, who honor me by bringing their best to me. They're saying it. God is greater, this God of the angel armies, all except you. Instead of honoring me, you profane me. You profane me when you say worship is not important and what we bring to worship is of no account. And when you say, I'm bored, this doesn't do anything for me, you act so superior, sticking your nose in the air, act superior to me, God of the angel armies. And when you do offer something to me, it's a hand-me-down or broken or useless. Do you think I'm going to accept it? This is God speaking to you. How does that speak to us? How does that speak to the modern church right now? Tozer writes of the Israelites in Malachi. Malachi exhorted and urged the people who had drifted into externalism and were satisfied with the whirling machinery and the motion of the pieces and parts, but cared nothing about the beating heart of worship and the life within it. God was mad because the Israelites weren't bringing their best. They weren't bringing their whole entire self. And that is the heart of worship. They were emphasizing the importance of showing up when they say what we bring to worship is not important. They were emphasizing receiving a blessing from God. This doesn't do anything for me. That's what they were saying. So they were emphasizing that blessing. But they were downplaying the importance of right attitude by calling it a weariness. And they were downplaying the importance of an offering that is worthy of God because they were bringing to God sacrifices that were blemished. That were broken. That weren't in the right attitude. Their offerings were from a place of convenience and they expected God to bless them as if they had brought the very best they had. How many times do we offer what is convenient yet expect God to move radically in our lives through intimacy with God, clarity, answered prayers, peace, joy, hope? Assurance of salvation, purpose. Further, how many times do we offer the bare minimum to simply maintain salvation without seeking the heart of God? Do we honestly believe 
we deserve a pat on the back for singing a song we dislike. For giving an extra $20 to the orphanage. For sacrificing a leisurely morning in order to get to church even though we complain the whole way because we wish we had longer in pajamas. Is God truly honored by our worship if we refuse to worship if the preacher stumbles, the band made mistakes or is outdated, the TVs don't turn on, the Bible being projected is the KJV or NIV and we prefer ESV, in short, if we don't get anything out of it. God deserves the best. He commands our best. He doesn't prefer it. He doesn't wish we would give him our heart, souls, mind, and strength. He doesn't sit around thinking, wouldn't it be great if the church would give me the honor, fear, adoration, glory, and worship I deserve? No, God demands it. In Malachi 1.6, he says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? In Malachi 2.2, 2, he says, And now this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you. The gospel and all its grace and mercy does not excuse us from the command of getting, giving God all the honor, glory, praise, worship, awe, and fear we have. It does not give us a free pass to half-hearted, convenient worship. There's good news within the words of Malachi, though. Thank goodness. Chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, tells of a group of Israelites who gathered together and spoke about what Malachi had told them. They took it very seriously. They feared God. They returned to proper worship, and God saw them. He remembered them, and he declared them to be his own and his treasured possession. That group of people shows that there is grace, mercy, and forgiveness set aside for those who do take worship seriously. God is willing to forgive us for our half-hearted, convenient sacrifices. And he is calling us to step into this position of his treasured possession. Notice that he calls them and us possessions. Because they gave themselves totally to him. They belonged totally to him. They were his. They were no longer worried about giving from convenience because there was nothing left to give. He had it all. He didn't just have the best or the worst, or the convenient. He had everything. And he calls that from us too. That's a scary place. But Jesus gave all for us, so that in response, we give all to him. Jesus did not come to this world to be a consumer. He did not do things that were convenient, external actions in order to receive more in return. He did not bargain hunt for spiritual blessings. He did not give what was left over disguised as a sacrifice in order to be viewed as righteous. If Jesus was a consumer, he would demand our all without giving of himself. If Jesus was focused on externalism, he would have joined the Pharisees and preached self-righteousness by one's own power. If Jesus valued convenience, he would have never been born as a weak, worthless, powerless, 
suffering human. So how do we give our all? Tozer put it very simply. Want Jesus Christ and the glory will take care of itself. Stop worrying about what you will get out of worship. Stop trying to figure out where you can get more for your buck, spiritually speaking. Stop giving what is convenient and expecting to receive heaps upon heaps of blessings. Stop worrying about yourself, your glory, your blessings, your benefit. And simply want Jesus. Want his presence without reward. Want to sing his praises regardless of the song or style or instrument because you want to give honor to the one who is your Lord and Savior regardless of any circumstance. Want intimacy with him more than your comfort, more than anything. Don't want him for what he can do in your life. Want him because who he is and what he deserves. Louis Giglio defines worship as our response to what we value most. Our response to what we value most. When we value Jesus most, when we want him most, worship will naturally pour out of us. It sounds simple, but obviously it is not. When God calls us to do these unhuman tasks, though, he always gives of himself so that we might obey that call. You have been given the Holy Spirit. Tozer writes that internalism or worship that springs up from our souls is only possible through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit allows us to value Jesus most. The Holy Spirit allows us to surrender all. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to all Jesus has done for us. The Holy Spirit is the reason we are able to worship. And he's willing he is willing. We must simply ask and seek his sufficiency. Isaac Watts sums up why Jesus is worth our everything without anything in return in the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. He writes, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and bore contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice then to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Demands my soul, my life, my all. Jesus' love and his sacrifice for you and me demands all we have. So, my encouragement for you today is to reassess your worship. Reassess I need to reassess my worship. We, we honestly need to sit at the feet of Jesus and ask, where are we spiritually bargain hunting? Where are we putting the least possible for the most valuable thing in our life, which is knowing Jesus and receiving his sacrifice? And then I invite you to surrender that convenience to Jesus. 
repent, repent of putting ourselves first in our worship. Invite the Holy Spirit to light that fire of true worship and reverence in our souls. And then, like the Israelites, talk to others about it. Encourage others to ponder the love of Jesus. Encourage each other to give all we have in worship. Encourage each other to honor and love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And recommit our worship to true and proper worship through the Spirit. We're not called to do this alone. We're called to do this through the Holy Spirit. And we're called to do this through the encouragement of other believers. So let's be that group of Israelites that is God's treasured possession. Because he demands it. He doesn't want it. So let's quit bargain hunting.